0: everyone, my name is Reese Karlinski, and this is Young History, episode 129 on Somalia. The capital of Somalia is Mogadishu, and according to Somali's oral history, the name of the nation for the country we know today actually came from the patriarch named Somale. He is a man that lived in the 800s and is believed to be the person that spread Somali culture and people to the Horn of Africa. And it's believed that he came from the Ethiopia region and just moved east after there was dynastic issues. But this is a figure of a lot of debate because some say he didn't even exist at all. Historians have had trouble proving the things he did and didn't do. It's a whole lot of struggle back and forth with this, but this is the pretty widely accepted explanation of the name for Somalia. And some facts about Somalia are that the oldest mosques in Africa are in Somalia due to the closeness of the Horn of Africa to the Arabian Peninsula. Islam spread there very, very quickly. Some other facts are that 35% of all the camels in the world are in Somalia. And there is also a lot of evidence that suggests Somalia is the place where camels were domesticated for the first time in the entire world. Uh, A fact I thought was kind of cheeky was that 90% of the cars in Somalia have the wheel on the right side of the car, but by law, they still drive on the right side of the road, which just seems very convoluted to me, but maybe that's just the American in me talking. And another fun fact is that Somalia plays a sport called bandy which is like ice hockey but instead of a puck it uses a ball and the thing with this is that somalia as you can imagine doesn't have the temperament or temperature for ice hockey so most of the players on the somali national team live in sweden and practice there despite being somali and that's going to be about all for our facts and name and all that and i just want to get right into this history somalia is a very misunderstood country with a lot of history that goes into explaining why it is the way it is today So I don't want to dilly-dally anymore, and I just want to get right into it. So, as I always say, thank you guys so much for being here. And, finally, my name is Reese Karolinski, this is Young History, and this is Somalia. You guys enjoy. Origins begin in a time we can't even really pin down. People have been living here for as long back as we could possibly guess. There's evidence that suggests it was one of the first places inhibited by humans. There's evidence that suggests it was only recent indigenous cultures that formed the early Somali. It's very up in the air, but the things we do know are the first people here were hunter-gatherers and then pastoralists. Pastoralism was so significant to the first people because it was the only way to maintain steady meat supply while living in this very dry part of the desert. And this practice has stuck until this day and is used in rural areas very commonly. The kingdom of Punt occupied the Horn of Africa in the times of the ancient Egyptians. The only really evidence we have of Punt existing is writings from Egypt. They were famous for exporting gold, ivory, ebony, and frankincense. The kingdom of Punt gradually disappeared from historical records during the New Kingdom period of Egypt. The reasons for its decline and eventual disappearance remain unclear to most historians today. Could be due to the fact that shifts in trade went too heavily towards Egypt, and and Egypt seems to be the only trade partner that Punt had. So maybe if trade shifted, it meant that there was no longer a need for Punt and Egypt to have a relationship, and Punt fell apart. But there just really isn't a hard explanation here. Then we roll into the classical era, During the classical Greek era, the Horn of Africa was a huge trade hub. The cities here flourished with foreign goods and wealth. The Romans then took over some of the ports in the Pax Romana, which is the peacetime slash peak of Rome. Rome bought technologies, advancements, and other government systems into this country, and eventually these systems were adapted to be democracy, which lasted here for quite a while. Islam was introduced in the 600s by Muslims who were avoiding prosecution in Arabia. It quickly rose to become the most prominent religion in the region. And as I said before, the oldest mosques in Africa were built in Somalia, happening as early as the 800s. Things remained pretty stagnant until the 1400s, because that is when different powers arrived, which we'll get into right now. But that early time was filled with the expansion of civilization through Islam. There was a lot of pastoralism still going on, but then farms were built where they could be, and more urbanized centers started to form at Mogadishu and places like that. The Adal Sultanate was established in 1415 and lasted until 1577. The military peak of the Sultanate came under Ahmad ibn Ibrahim, who was a leader in the country from 1527 to 1543. It was also at the same time that the Ethiopian Adal War was going on. Ibrahim conquered Ethiopia for the Adal Sultanate, and the Adals gained victory because they had the trade in with the Ottomans, and this got them access to gunpowder and better weapons. Trade became the main source of wealth and significance for the country. This was when Mogadishu made its debut as a huge trade port in the Indian Ocean, and this was the peak of the Sultanate, but it didn't last long, and the Sultanate began to decline because, I bet you can guess it, weak leaders followed the very strong one, which is probably the most common thing I've seen across all historical studies, is that great leader, bad leader, follow-up that happens very, very often. The Ethiopians reached out to Portugal for help in the war they were fighting, and they made an alliance. And it was due to this alliance that the Battle of Wana Daga was fought in 1543. This weakened the sultanate and left it susceptible to invasions from native people groups. The Anjuran sultanate was another power that was huge in the oceanic trade, and it was still pushed out of Mogadishu as well. The Sultan established trade ties as far away as China during the rule of the Ming Dynasty. One of the famous depictions of Far East trade came from this era, where a drawing of a Chinese man admiring the Somali giraffe he purchased can be seen in many historical contexts, and it's actually one that my professor, (laughs) Philip Jansen, used at the University of Florida when teaching African history. So clearly he's one that's very significant because it's making its way to all sorts of institutions and different levels of learning. And the Anjuran Sultanate started to decline when wars broke out and it weakened the trade stability of the region, which was, again, the most powerful thing the country had going for it was its hegemony on trade. And the huge differences between the Adal Sultanate in the north and the Abjura Sultanate were the onset of a disconnected culture between the north and coastal regions of Somalia. And this time was also defined by the rise of the clan system in the country. It most heavily affected the relations between the Isak and Dijo people who live in the north. But the clan system itself created five major clans for the nation, the Darod, the Harwi, the Rahwa, the Abgal, the Dijil, and the Isak. These clans transcended the Sultanates and were the main uniting force for different people groups. The clan system involved hierarchies of large clans over small ones that lied under their influence. Taxes were placed on the small clans by the heads of the large clans and stiff tensions between the classes arose because of this. The clan system continued to be important throughout Somali history and is even still present in political decisions to this day. The DIA system, or blood tax system, rose to prominence at this same point. This system legalized pretty much the eye-for-eye philosophy, where if somebody killed another person's family member, then the family is entitled to the killing of someone in that murderer's family. The system created a hierarchy of clans where the clan leaders demanded DIA payments from smaller cities, but instead of using the blood tax... They would usually force these clans to pay taxes or pay a certain amount of resources away, and this led to greater subdivisions where the small clans would actually go to even smaller clans and do the same system so that they could pay off their debts to the largest clans, which were the big six. And this created a lot of infighting that never really went away fully. The Giletti Sultanate was one of the pieces that filled the power vacuum once the Andrian Sultanate had started to fall apart. They were a region based on slave trade and slave labor, and they used slavery to fund the trade out of the East Coast. The Somali coast was far from united, and this led to separate issues for each region. British Somaliland was established in 1884, and this happened after the British conquered their way all the way to the Horn of Africa. They gained hegemony over the people by coordinating with the local chiefs, but the term coordinate is very liberal. It was much more of a manipulation and disconnect between languages that was taken advantage of for British benefit so that they could provide legality as to why they are able to take over different parts of the country. Italian Somaliland was created just before, in 1880. The Italians occupied the southern coast and the point of the African horn to challenge the British control to trade in the Indian Ocean. These areas of Somalia were made legal by the Berlin Conference of 1884, where the European powers all sat down and claimed parts of Africa without considering how Africans would feel because the bigger thing with this conference is that Europeans didn't want to fight each other for this stuff and they didn't really care what they had to do to anyone who wasn't European in order to get what they wanted. And it would be after this that Yusuf Ali Kanadid became prominent. He was a Somali sultan near the Horn of Africa in the 1870s and 1880s. He agreed to give territory to the Italian Empire because he was in a dynastic struggle against his cousin, Osman Mahmud. He believed the aid from Italy would help his war effort. Mohammed Abdullah Hassan was a Somali poet that was most popular in the 1890s to 1920s. He stood stoutly against the arrival of Europeans and Ethiopians in the area. He was the leader of the Dervish Movement. The Dervish movement lasted from 1896 to 1925. In this movement, Hassan used poetry and speeches to motivate his people against European occupation. This movement turned violent throughout the 1910s. The Dervish forces pushed the British to the coast until World War I. After World War I, the British pushed back hard and defeated the Dervish once and for all using their brand new air force. The Dervish movement caused Italy to pull out investments in their Somaliland, leaving it mostly to itself and heavily underdeveloped. Fascist Italy was led by Benito Mussolini, who invested a lot in the region. Eventually, the Italians moved against the British from their base in Ethiopia. By the end of these battles, Italian East Africa hit its peak size. The Italians controlled the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia. And because of this connection, this is when Somalis in what becomes Somalia realize how many ethnic Somalis there were nearby because there was French Somaliland, which becomes Djibouti. There was British Somaliland, which is... We'll get into that. And then there was the eastern part of Ethiopia, which was now united as one thing, had a lot of ethnic Somalis. So because of this, this idea of a greater Somalia and uniting it comes into the minds of the Somali people. During World War II, Winston Churchill was battling against Italy and the other Axis powers. He referred to Italy as the soft underbelly of Europe and then proceeded to use the Royal Air Force to crush the Italians. Negotiations after the war brought the end of Italian control in the Somali region. After the war... Colonial powers started to shift from abusive power to kinder ones. Both Somalilands were invested in heavily. The regions were both British Somaliland in the north and Somali from the Horn of Africa to the southern coast. Both parts were administered by the British despite the name. Trade was heavily protected, education was expanded, healthcare grew, and stability politically was present. In the Italian Somaliland, an educated middle class grew due to the expanded education and the ability for people to leave Somalia, go get educated in other areas and foreign schools, and come back bringing education and better salary to their country. But administering Somaliland became a major point of debate between the newly founded UN, the British, and the Italians. After a lot of back and forth, the UN gave control of the coastal Somalia region to Italy in 1950. The deal was that Italy was to develop the nation and then let it become independent within a few years. And this did happen. In 1960, which is colloquially known as the Year of Africa, the Somali Republic was officially created. The issue with this was that the Italian and British territories near the Horn of Africa were now united into one republic. Due to the occupation of these powers and the previous tensions between clans and the old Adal versus Andura Sultanate, there was a lot of cultural differences between these two clans and different people that made up these clans. On top of this, the European powers exploited these tensions to make it more divided and and eliminate the idea of a united front coming to challenge the British or the Italians. So that was another thing that happened. So right now, upon independence, tensions are very high, and you now have people of completely different cultures living under one roof, which is always a recipe for disaster. Despite this, though, the time of European Occupation that followed World War II caused education, healthcare, and the economy to rise steadily year over year in both Somalia. In Somalia, the first president of Somalia was Aden Ade. He represented the stable democracy that was present for the start of independent Somalia. But stability didn't last because in in 1963, Kenya gained independence from British colonial rule, and this led to clashes right away with Somalia. The newly independent Kenyan government was faced with challenges related to its northern border with Somalia. In Somalia, the government under President Aden Abdullah, Ade, supported the protests that were happening in North Kenya by ethnic Somalis who wanted to be united into greater Somalia. The Shifta war began in the early 1960s with the Shifta launching armed attacks and raids into the northern front of Kenya, and the conflict resulted in high casualties on both sides and widespread disruption. The British, who still had a military presence in the northern region of Kenya, played a role in supporting the Kenyan government's efforts to suppress this Somali insurgency. The British provided troops and resources to combat the Shifta. In 1967, after years of conflict, the Kenyan and Somali governments agreed to a ceasefire, and negotiations were held in Arusha, Tanzania. This led to the signing of the Arusha Memorandum in October 1967, which marked a formal end to the hostilities. It also recognized the existence of the modern border between Kenya and Somalia. In 1967, President Chermarquet took office, and after only two years, he was assassinated in a coup in 1969. The coup was led by military official Mohammed Siad Barre. The coup was backed by the USSR with a lot of funding and weapons, and Barre became the de facto leader of Somalia. The country was now being ran as a socialist society. Mohamed Siad Barre ran the country with an iron fist, and he made reforms that weakened the country. Barre was one of the Darad clan, and his policies would be made in favor of its members. His main enemy was the Isak clan, which had clashed with his clan for ages. He made policies that limited political freedom of the Durad and excluded them from certain jobs. He made policies that limited political freedom of the Isak and excluded them from certain jobs. And the clashes between these people go back to that Abdel Sultanate region that we dealt with before, which was at this point 600 years ago. And because of the policies against the Isak, they formed into the Somali National Movement, which was a clan created to defend against the abuses of the government barre started to do things that were a little off kilter he paid himself a lot of money to be president and then would decide to spend different amounts of the country's money on himself however infrastructure and education was a huge step in the right direction under barre but after only a few years he started to run a very serious authoritarian regime he nationalized most industries which took wealth away from the people and gave it back to the hands of the government which was right back in his pocket massive industrialization caused a huge demand for factory jobs. Barre believed that a greater Somalia could be established. He based his belief in the nearby ethnic groups that were in Somalia, Kenya, that were in Ethiopia, Kenya, and farther west. The only way to achieve greater Somalia was to invade Ethiopia, which he ordered in 1977. And this began the Olgaden War. This lasted from 1977 to 1978. The war moved very fast. At first, Somali forces pushed through defensive forts and conquered a lot of territory. But the weakness of Somalia became clear. They had no money... To form a modern military and keep it running. They also had no resource reserves, which were supposed to be used for wartime consumption. And also, this move by Somalia didn't sit well with the USSR, so they actually ended up backing Ethiopia in the war. The Ethiopians rallied and were eventually backed by Fidel Castro of Cuba. Fidel believed the Ethiopian side was being oppressed and they needed help for liberation. Ethiopia won the war and Somalia was in tailspin. Somalia's government reached out to the U.S. for foreign aid. And as the economy declined, the country was ran more and more like a dictatorship. The war itself left a bad taste in people's mouths as they felt their suffering in this war was for naught and that their money had been wasted. Protests and riots gripped the northern part of Somalia, which was British Somaliland and was separate from Italian Somaliland. Just so you guys are kind of getting in your head where this was on the map. And after the things that happened in the war, about one million Somalis from Ethiopia migrated into Somalia to join in the country that represented their ethnicity more than anything else. And this increase in population further stretched the food issue and highlighted the lack of resources in the nation. The nation's water systems and food supply started to fall apart because funding was not going towards them, and this forced Somalia to rely heavily on imports. Oh, and Bari only gave these imports to the clans that supported him, and he let the other ones starve. Barre's regime became more repressive, and the economy was at a complete downturn. Armed groups formed within clans to challenge the Barre government. Barre started to become directly abusive. He told his soldiers to kidnap and capture his opposition and do what they wanted with them. He restricted civil rights of all clans outside of his clan and party. He also enacted the statewide curfew that was used as a reason for his soldiers to harass civilians. His men made consistent profit from detaining people and looting their property for money based on this curfew. And this all brewed into the greater conflict and led to the Somaliland War of Independence. This was fought from 1981 to 1991. The war was brutal for everyone as fighting happened in rural areas of the north and then expanded to different cities and towns. Barre ordered the bombing of the north consistently. Innocents had their lives threatened, which was at its worst during the Isak genocide, which lasted from 87 to 89. 200,000 Isak people were killed and 500,000 people in the area exiled for safety. Over 200 mass graves were created in North Somalia in what became known as the Valley of Death. Despite the brutality of the fighting and the great cost of life that came with it, the rebels never give up. And in 1991, they declared Somaliland as independent. This was and is heavily unrecognized. And currently, there is no country in the world that recognizes the independence of Somaliland except for Taiwan. And Taiwan itself is still only partially recognized. The Somali government still tried to claim this land as part of Somalia proper, but has been unable to subdue the revolutionary flame in Somaliland ever since. And ever since independence, Somalia had this huge divide between the north and south, but the struggle of the country as a whole cannot be denied. The instability since independence, and we're talking about 1960 independence, made it hard to maintain production of any good products. So the country was bringing minuscule amounts of money in and had to import goods on top of shoveling money out to do these imports. And to top it off, water, electricity, and food all became too expensive for most people to afford, and it meant that the population now didn't have access to these needs. By 1991, nothing was going well, and the cost of food had increased to the point where it was even more unaffordable than before. Protests broke out across the nation and most heavily in Mogadishu. The city was overtaken, and Bahrain attempted to retake it, and he failed. This caused Bahre to flee the nation with the country's reserves in a tank, and these reserves amounted about $27 million. This forced the end of Barre's rule in January of 1991, which marked the start of the Somali Civil War. This war began in 1992 and would go on in different points for quite a while. In 1992, the fighting got so bad between the forces that were trying to replace Barre and also keep him out and the ones that supported Bahre that a UN task force was actually sent in to try and fight for peace because... Things were getting so bad that people were getting injured and killed in their homes very commonly, and it was starting to become a true humanitarian crisis. The tax force was present in Somalia from 1992 to 1993. And at first, it was just a humanitarian force meant to give aid and protect civilians. But from 1993 to 1995, the UN began an operation in Somalia to end the fighting. This was said to be an attempt to stabilize the government, but no lasting stability was ever created. And this was due to a strong distaste from any international intervention in Somali affairs because everyone saw how that had gone before, with years of colonialism and the fact that most African nations that get interfered with end up very poor and struggling because of the effects the Europeans or Americans have. Civilians started to take up arms against the UN task force because they saw them as colonizers, and fighting because of all this lasted until 1995. The UN pulled out due to high casualties among UN soldiers, and eventually the fighting started to slow down, but tensions remained. Officially, war broke out again in 2006. Rebel forces united under the flag of al-Shabaab, which was an extremist group, to challenge the government. Al-Shabaab became famous for their brutality and violent terrorist attacks. Al-Shabaab started to kidnap foreign tourists that were in Kenya, and this made Kenya furious, which led to the Kenyan military involvement in 2011. Operation Linda Nchi, which means protect the country, lasted from 2011 to 2012. The Kenyan forces wanted to create a buffer state between the al-Shabaab in Somalia and Kenya's northern border. Kenya was able to secure a military border between the two states after pushing back al-Shabaab forces. Operation Indian Ocean began in 2014 when the African Union and the United States backed the Somali military against the rebel group. This was mainly to stop al-Shabaab in the eyes of the United States because they saw them as a terrorist group, but many believe that this was also a kind of war on different socialist ideas that were rising within these rebel groups. And ever since this point, the fighting has not really stopped. It's been over 20 years since that original start to the... Somali Civil War, and we're getting close to 30 years now of consistent fighting. No matter how many negotiations and peace talks happen, the wars that happen and fighting that happens continues to go on because people have this clan system which has been in place for so long and has created great divides as a thing that's encouraging them to fight each other. And on top of this, the tensions were raised between ethnic groups because of British Somaliland and Italian Somaliland, all sorts of things like that. So it's overall a very tough issue to talk about, but The overall sentiment is that fighting and safety, fighting and lack of safety are both very common in Somaliland and Somalia because of all the issues that are happening. I do want to acknowledge one major thing, the Somali pirates. And I want to talk about this just because they're pretty heavily misunderstood. And even though great movies like Captain Phillips are great movies, there is still some misrepresentation where even though these Somali pirates have committed crimes, they've taken over sea vessels and done things that are fully illegal. There is still the truth that these people have only done this because it's been impossible to live in their country. When you're a part of any group that isn't the one in power or was the one in power under Barre, it's very hard to afford anything. And currently the instability of the country is so high and so common that it's been impossible for people to get by. So from 2009 to 2011, there was about 150 pirate attacks each year. And of course these pirate attacks were illegal. They were stealing. There were killings. It was awful. But it plays into a bigger role with the country, which is the fact that people literally turn to sailing out into the middle of the ocean trying to find a way to provide themselves with food and money to survive. So it shows more the issue with the government rather than the Somali people. And with all that being said, that gets us to the present, where the long-term fighting, instability, and lack of government policy has caused Somalia to be one of the poorest and dangerous countries in the world. There is violence across the nation, and piracy is still a huge problem near the major cities. Somalia has about a 75% poverty rate, and exports 22 times the amount it imports, which has created a huge reliance on foreign good and a huge gap in wealth. On top of this, due to the horrible irrigation systems in the nation, most of the country is left without water and the rural areas are very, very dry. The main thing I want to acknowledge about this is the fact that the internal fighting today is a result of unsolved clan issues that have been going on for 600 years, and then they were exploited by the Europeans, which has caused Somalia to be deeply unstable because nobody has trust for anyone, nobody will forgive all sorts of things that just encourage fighting, they're all happening here in Somalia, and that's the reason the country is in the struggle it's in today. And that is the end, which means I always like to leave it with a takeaway or mindset, and with Somalia, that's just going to be do what you have to and forget what other people think. I say that with Somalia because this country and its people are not in a great place. There's a lot of suffering nationwide, and it's been thrust upon them. It's also been enhanced by them two things can be true at once and both of those need to be acknowledged but the average joe living here isn't the problem it's people that are in power it's the criminals it's different things like that that have swayed the nation and of course the european powers that push them now the people here are very resilient and they have to just do what they have to do now i'm not saying go be a somali pirate because it is illegal and odds are you will lose your life doing that but i say more fully and seriously Somalia is trying very hard to do whatever it can. People are trading any goods they can, getting education wherever they can, all these things just to better their lives and hopefully better Somalia. And they're getting judged for it. People see Somalis as pirates and yada yada. There's a whole lot of stereotypes and stupid things that come out of people's mouths. And despite this... The people of Somalia are still pushing on and will do what they have to, no matter what other people think. And I think you can very easily apply that to yourself because, you know, it doesn't matter if you're trying to do a podcast, become a singer, become a football player, or any other job that's super big in the public or super not. If you have goals and you have things that you want to do, people are going to get in the way of that. People are going to question it. People are going to try and pull you away yada 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 the main thing you need to do is just focus on it do the work do what you have to do and don't care what anyone else says because no matter how much a person loves you they don't live your life they may not see the vision like you do and it's just not going to be a good lineup so don't deal with that don't settle for it and just continue to push on and no matter what happens work hard forget what people think and you'll get your stuff done much like Somalia is trying to do to this day And that gets us to the absolute end where I just want to wrap it up and say thank you guys so much for being here. Somalia is a very misunderstood country, a very misrepresented country in the media, but it's one that I find very interesting. So I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History, and that was Somalia. You guys have a good one.